Just a heads up, this episode gets quite emotional. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. 48 years of rich history and Australian stockhorse bloodlines. The Dolby Stockhorse Sale is the largest affiliated Australian stockhorse sale in the nation. The Dolby Stockhorse Sale and this episode is brought to you by the Raywatt Rural Dolby and the Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stockhorse Society. Find them on Facebook. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Describing herself as a workaholic, motivated by a challenge, Kate Jones was forced to face the fight of her life. This conversation with Kate is real and raw. Known as the owner of the Australian Camp Drafting magazine, Kate opens up about her health journey and the battle that inspired her to take back the reins in more ways than one. From the saddle. From the saddle. Good morning, Kate Jones. Thank you very much for joining us at From the Saddle podcast. Now, Kate, you are the owner of the Australian Camp Draft magazine. Good morning, Caitlin. Yes, I certainly am the owner of the Australian Camp Drafting magazine. That's a fairly big title and role you have there. Tell us how it all came about. When did you first purchase the magazine? I purchased the magazine in 2013. My mother-in-law, Sue Jones, originally started the magazine from scratch and it was started in 2005 and it was actually launched at Warwick. We had a lovely dinner and, and launched the book there for her. And then lo and behold, as time went on, we'd looked and said what a great business it was and that'd be where I'd like to be. We actually tried to buy the magazine a couple of times from Sue and because she did have it on the market and she wouldn't sell it to us. (laughs) Uh, And um, it was in that time when when social media became quite to the forefront and things like that and, and Sue was worried pretty much the world was going to be taken over by social media, I think, and that it wasn't going to be what it was. And um, I never thought that at all and never once did we think that. But anyway, she knocked us back a couple of times until the day she knocked on my door and she said, "Um, would you like to purchase the magazine? And at that point I went, just hang on a minute, I'll get my checkbook. (laughs) So, Kate, do you think she wouldn't sell it to you because she felt there was a risk for you or what was the why behind that? I suppose the why was it's the amount of work that was involved with it we knew was was a huge amount of work. And really, I do think it, back then it was social media um, had come right to the front. And I suppose in a, an era of people that didn't really know what social media was going to do, there was a concern that print media may go by the wayside. Yeah. And I think it's, it was as simple as that. Yeah. So, Kate, at this point, were there any other magazines or print media about that was not a competition because competition is not the right word, but doing similar things to what you were doing and reporting on, you know, the camp draft industry and the equine industry? Yeah, there certainly were. I suppose then and still are today, we've got the association newsletters that go out as part of their membership packages and most camp draft associations and the Stock Horse Society have that. We did have the Australian Horsemen 
magazine originally back then and the Australian Performance Horse magazine was ticking along then too. So there were certainly other competition in the whole market. I suppose you could even classify horse deals in the market as well because it was probably right in its prime then as well. It was a, a book nearly the size of a phone book each month then. Mm. So yeah, no, there were com- there was a lot of competition. But in saying that, that was the reason Sue originally started the Australian Camp Drafting magazine is that she never wanted to get involved in any politics of the sport. She just wanted to showcase camp drafting at its finest. And that's what we do. We hope to do. And we, we've also given the avenue for the camp drafters' wives, which not all camp drafters' wives ride and compete and families. So there's also the cooking and the gardening and the beauty and things like that that go into the magazine. And it was more a whole family lifestyle magazine that she wanted to create. And that's certainly what we've done. Yeah. So, Kate, what made you want to buy it? Were you always in the publishing industry or is it just something that you were intrigued by? Where did it come from? Well, I suppose, Caitlin, I'm a workaholic to start with. So I married into camp drafting. I was never a camp drafter. I had show horses and we had polar cross horses at the time. Well, I've had them all my life. And then when I married Cameron, I married into the camp drafting and fell in love with the sport. And I suppose I fell in love with the people Mm. more so. But I certainly wasn't a confident camp drafter. I started in the encouragements and won that and then moved to the ladies and won those. And I've competed in the opens and and the likes of. But I was always wanted to do something. And I could see Sue on the sideline taking her photos and she was still a part of the industry. And I just said to Cameron, whatever I do, I need to be busy. So when the time comes, I've got to find myself something to do if I'm camp drafting. I just couldn't sit Mm. and watch camp drafting. So hence that's when I picked my camera up and when the opportunity for the magazine come along, that just fitted what I wanted to do. I wanted to be working while I was still enjoying it. Yeah. So Kate, 2013, you are the owner of the Australian Camp Drafting magazine, but life took a turn shortly after that. Yeah, 2013 was an exciting year for me. I'd taken a redundancy out of government, purchased a new business, being the Australian Camp Drafting magazine, set off on my trip to take my own photos of the big three camp drafts and come home and and produced my book, which I just loved. Then 2014 came around and I had a, um, look, I was probably a tired mum you know, a tired person and I just needed, I just was tired and lethargic and for some reason I went to the doctors and and, um, I couldn't get an answer out of the doctor, to be honest. I couldn't see the same doctor twice and I just happened to cop a, a young lady doctor one day and I said, look, just send me for some more tests. I'm tired and this is not how I roll. Anyway, I got out into the car park and burst into tears and um, rang Cameron and I said, I don't know what, what I've just done, mate, but they're going to send me for a colonoscopy and, and give me the once over. And he said, well, that's good. No worries. So a few weeks went by and um, I had to line up for my colonoscopy and if anyone has had one of those or knows about them, 
that Prep C kit is the most terrible thing you've got to drink in your whole entire life. And I said to Cameron, why am I doing this? I'm actually okay. I'm not sick. Why am I putting myself through this? And he said, well, you've come this far, Kate. Let's get it sorted and just see. Let's just make sure we tick it off the list. I said, oh, righto. So we toddled off the following day to Tamworth to the private hospital and I had a lined up for my colonoscopy and was lucky enough to have a surgeon there um, who had the shiniest, most beautiful RM Williams boots and I felt quite comfortable that he was a country person and I joked with him at the time and said, just look, give me a clean out, would you? I'll be right. And um, little did I know within several hours, literally within several hours, I was diagnosed with um, bowel cancer and had a mass which absolutely rocked our world. We didn't know within an hour of being told that I was having more scans. Within an hour of that again, I was having more blood tests and the following day I was back in his office to find a plan to try and save my life. And that's that's the extent of it. I was in trouble. So, Kate, it purely stemmed from you just feeling lethargic. There were no other symptoms or signs looking back? No. Looking back, really, I was tired and I had a tiny little bit of blood in my stool, but nothing to be worried about that I thought, you know, like might be here today and not back for another few weeks. And that's only looking back now. It wasn't anything that alarmed me, but I was just, I was on committees. I was a mum. I was working all the horses. I was working very hard and I was just run down and um, I just couldn't get back up. Like I just couldn't run at the pace that I thought I should be running at. Mm. And that was the only real sign that I, and I don't know why I took myself off to the doctors. I'd, I'd look after my boys and put them first, but I never really thought that I needed, I just don't know why I went to the doctor, to be honest. I look back and I really don't know why. So Kate, you had your colonoscopy and obviously you've come out of that like, how did the diagnosis come about? Did they take you into a room? What was the procedure here? No, I was I was one of the first ones in that day to have my colonoscopy, which is routine stuff. Like, you go in, you have it done, you come out. I don't do anaesthetic very well. So I knew that I was going to be probably a little bit slower to recover and get out of there. But when I noticed that everyone else was leaving, like before me, and... I just said to the nurse, why? Why can't I go home? She said, oh, no, 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 just sit there for a bit longer. And then the doctor come out and saw me um, and he just broke the news to me that I definitely had a very big mass and that I was in a bit of trouble and a fair bit of trouble. And I remember seeing the faces on that doctor and that especially two beautiful nurses there that day that had looked after me. And I look back now and I remember their faces and the tears that were in their eyes. Like I didn't have tears at that stage because I just didn't know how to function. I didn't know what to do or where to actually head. Our world was literally tipped upside down that day. So where was Cameron at this point? Cameron was with me and and to his credit, 
he is very much with me all the way and has been every step of the way. He took me over that day and that's how we roll. We've done everything together and we're very solid like that and I, I'm i so thankful for it because I don't know where or how we would have got through this if he wasn't as solid as what he is. So, Kate, they knew you had a mass. Did they know anything more at that point? No, they didn't. Um, they knew that I was in trouble. So instantly within, well, the following day, as, as I said, I was at the doctor's surgery and he had contacted the leading bowel cancer surgeon at the time. He was based in Newcastle and he had said to me, you will be down there within a couple of days and you'll see him, of which we, we went straight down and saw that surgeon and he never left us leave the hospital. He had us go straight away to the hospital and make sure that we'd done all our scans, all my checks and book in. And he said, I'll see you in a couple of days. And so that was literally what happened. I went back and um, I was booked in to have surgery. Now, not knowing whether it'd be keyhole or whether they'd have to completely open me up, I did not know at the time. And I was confronted with all of that at the time to deal with. And yet again, you don't know when you walk into someone's surgery. I'd never heard of this man. I didn't know anything about him apart from that the surgeon in Tamworth had recommended him highly. And it's just so comforting when you walk into a surgeon's office and yet again, for some reason I look back now, that man had the neatest and tidiest R.M. Williams boots, the same as the Tamworth surgeon, and I felt comfortable with him. He was a surfing man. <sighs> so go figure, but these R.M. Williams boots just kept coming back into my life and I felt comfortable. So we trusted him. So Kate, what sort of surgery did you have to have? So I ended up having surgery. I was operated on the 7th of April and the 7th of April is actually my son's birthday and he was six-year-old in kindergarten that day. Unfortunately, I couldn't speak to him that day. I was tied up in surgery and, and out to it. So it ended up going very well. My surgeon, I ended up having keyhole and he ended up taking a huge amount of my bowel and hopefully he said no guarantees, we may have got it all. Um, but then you're in for the long recovery and I knew that I was in for a, a massive recovery and and I knew then that I was in for a big lot of chemo. So had it spread? I was diagnosed because you've got to let it recover first and wait for your results to come through and the day I walked into the oncology centre back in Tamworth to get my results, I, I seriously remember this little oncology man who is just the most amazing man now I look back on it, but he was in his private office that day and a little old lady had walked out of that office that day and the staff were crying, her husband was crying and they were literally sending this lady away to be put in hospital never to never to come out again. She was very sick and I had to go in after that and he told me that I had stage four bowel cancer. That's all the stages there are and he didn't know where it had gone. 
So we have to be very aggressive and we need to get this sorted straight away. And I remember breaking down in tears. That's when I really broke down in tears. And he turned around to me and said, now listen, I don't do tears. And I thought, oh my gosh, how cold can you be? You know, you've just shattered my life telling me that I've got stage four bowel cancer and I really don't have a chance. But knowing what that man now had to deal with prior to me and has to deal with on a daily basis, I so understand how he had this cold look because I'd never want his job ever. So, yeah, stage four, fight for your life, Kate. So all your scans that you had to have after your colonoscopy, did they not show any of that? No. They showed a mass, but because it had extruded the bowel wall, that's what deemed me stage four and where was it going to float in my system? Once we'd worked out that I needed my chemo and I was going to start, I had to have a a final scan and unfortunately on that scan, my lungs showed up with marks on my lungs and they panicked straight away and said, oh my gosh, we actually think you may have lung cancer as well and sent me back to Newcastle to have further PET scans and, and really go into depth with that. and. I remember going down there and driving home and I hadn't told my mum and dad about that at the time. They knew about my bowel cancer and and the fight that I had, but how do you then tell your parents that you've, you've possibly got lung cancer? Um, yeah, it was just a tough day. They were amazing, but the medical staff were nothing but fantastic because I had a phone call from my original surgeon at the time coming home from Newcastle. And he actually said to me, Kate, I've just received your results back of your PET scan and you don't have lung cancer. So that was just, I suppose it's bittersweet. I I needed that to then fight. I knew I had to then fight. Like when you don't know, I was thinking, how am I going to fight two things? Mm -hmm. But I didn't. I, I had to pick myself up and go, okay, let's get started on the chemo for the bowel cancer. And let's get into it, of which I did. So Mark was six. How old were you at this point? I think I was 34. And did you tell Mark? How did you you do that? I had to tell Mark. We had to explain it to Mark. Mark's an only child. So how do you you not tell a child? And Mark's very lucky because he's he's always being with the grown-ups. Like being an only child, that's how we roll. So we had to explain that, you know, I was going to be sick and I had to explain to start with that I was away for his birthday. And and how do you explain and why do you, ex- you just got to say it and you just got to tell him how it is and, and explain it. And the surgeon was very good when he came down and showed Mark on a diagram what was going to happen. And Mark was very comforted by that. I think like he's always understood and known that there's days that I'm just not going to be well and he had to understand it because I couldn't go to the school I couldn't go shopping I couldn't go anywhere because I wasn't allowed to go while I was on chemo I had to be really sort of confined out of any germs because your immune system is basically non-existent absolutely and because I had to have such high doses of chemo 
I was lucky enough to get to a camp draft, but I, the only time I could go to a camp draft is if I sat in the car. I know if I was feeling well enough to be able to get away and it fell in time, you know, once you have your chemo, you have good days and bad days and, and if it fell in the good days, well, then Cameron would load me up in the car and we'd go and sit and watch it or a hack show or something like that. We even went and watched a dog show one day just to get me out of the house. <laughs> yeah. So, Kate, how long did chemo last? How did you handle that? I didn't handle it. Chemo was tough. The first chemo I had, I said I'd be fine. It was only a tablet to take. And I said to Cameron, you go to work. I'm right. It's only a tablet, mate. I can deal with this. And I was very fortunate that Sue came around and checked on me that morning and found me very, very sick, um, of which she rang Cam straight away and, and they rushed me back to Tamworth Hospital. I didn't handle the chemo at all. I literally, you then had to have a portacath put in and, um, it, and a portacath is a valve that they put in your chest that goes straight in and they administer your drugs through that. So literally that's what happened from then on and, and they're amazing. Medical staff are amazing. They just found a drug and combinations of drugs that made me more comfortable. It was never great, but they made me more comfortable and I could just have as much as I could. But I got to the stage with my chemo that I couldn't have any more and I'd I'd lost all the feeling in my feet. So I had to actually stop my chemo short, which they were worried about doing. But if they didn't, well, then I wouldn't have been able to walk down the track. So how long were you on chemo for? I finished in November. So I was lucky enough to get to Warwick for a couple of days that year and take some photos very quietly on a chair. Um, There was no party in me, I can guarantee you that. But um, I was lucky enough to get to Warwick that year and do that for the magazine. And, uh, yeah, I finished in the November and they just keep watching me. So, Kate, you know, this diagnosis came shortly after purchasing the magazine. How Mm. did... You managed to keep that operational. I was very lucky I had family. Sue stepped back in again as far as writing some articles was concerned. And so she she wrote a few articles for me as we went. But my credit has to go to Cameron because he really took the workload on of making the phone calls and dealing with committees or more so my stallion owners and advertising people that I rang because I ring my advertisers every edition and have done from the day that I bought it to now. I ring them every edition and I say hello and we chat about life in general and, and we work out what our plan is for that edition. And that's whether they come with me that edition or not. Like I always make those phone calls. So I just wasn't up to making any of those. Um, I literally brought my office into my home and then the days that I could physically get up, I always, no matter what happened through my chemo, there was never a day I didn't get dressed. So I always got up and look, I may not have been into glamorous clothes, but I always got out of my pyjamas and I always got dressed. So I got dressed and then the day that I could go and sit and do 10 minutes on the magazine, I did. So 
I always did the the design and the layout in it. Um, I did have a backup plan if I ever needed it, but I just managed to get through. But Cameron was really the – he really stepped up and did all of those phone calls and people asked why. And I felt I had to tell the story then. I felt I had to say why Cameron was ringing. Even though I didn't want people to worry about our private life, all of a sudden I was in the public figure and I, I just felt that I needed to say why I was sick and not just letting Cameron ring everyone. How did you find people would respond to that? Amazingly. Absolutely amazing. Stallion owners are just the most beautiful people. I mean, all camp doctors are beautiful people, but stallion owners, you know, straight away, I, I've never been... I've never been so overwhelmed by their generosity. Admittingly, we never took anyone up on that. We weren't in need of that, Caitlin. Like, that's not what Cameron was ringing for. Um, We wanted to keep life as normal, but the amount of people that offered us service fees, if we were going to have an auction or if you needed to have a charity to raise any money to help you with my treatment, they were there. It was incredible. Now, as I said, we never took anyone up on that and we never wanted to. I was very fortunate that I was, I'd seen a lady to do our our superannuation and our insurances and our medical stuff. And I just said to her, can you just sort this? Because I don't understand the fine print of a lot of insurances. And that was what she did. And she went through it and she kept ringing me and Kate, sign this paperwork. I was like, oh, yes, right, I sign the paperwork. But I really never probably knew what I was signing, Caitlin. I, yes, we were signing insurance paperwork and it was a health insurance and things like that, but I never really thought anything of it. And it wasn't until we were driving home from Newcastle that day from that PET scan and Fiona actually rang me and she's a really beautiful person as well and she just rang. She said, oh, I haven't been chatting with you for a while. What's going on? And I actually said, well, actually, Fiona, I'm in a bit of trouble. And I hadn't had my results at that stage back. And I said, I'm actually in a bit of trouble because I definitely have bowel cancer and I'm looking down the barrel of lung cancer as well. And she said, oh, my God. She said, Kate, I was hoping you'd at least be 65 or better before we had to deal with any of this, but I have you insured. And I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it meant. But she actually had trauma insurance for us and that was part of our health package and that was just amazing. I didn't know anything about trauma insurance and if I can recommend that anyone has an insurance, they get it and they get it fast because it was certainly helpful. didn't matter whether I'd had a heart attack or bowel cancer or anything, I was certainly covered for it which was amazing and we don't normally claim insurance or look for any of that sort of thing but what that did for us was allowed us to have a young girl come and live with us nearly like a backpacker situation but she came and lived with us and she became part of my family and she could go and do my shopping and pick Mark up and it took the pressure off Cameron so he could go to work and then he could take me to my treatment and she was with us for, for about 12 months. From the saddle. From the saddle. 
Ray White Rural Dolby specialise in residential, rural and livestock sales marketing. The Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stock Horse Society is a non-profit organisation and together they host the largest affiliated Australian stock horse sale in the nation alongside an incentive camp draft program highlighting the quality pedigree, ability and performance of the Australian stock horse breed. The Dolby Stock Horse Sale. Follow them on Facebook. From the saddle. From the saddle. How did you get through the bad days? Yeah, they were tough. They were tough. There was a week I remember vividly where I I actually was so sick. I said to Cameron, I'm done. I, I actually can't go any further. Stop the treatment. <clears throat> I'm done. And he said, you can't. And I said, you tell me why I can't. I said, because my quality of life now is nothing. So no one at that time, the oncologist will never tell you that you're what your chances are and nor will the doctors. No one would tell me what my chances were of, of recovery and I, or survival, really. And I said to... Um, Cameron, get me some answers because if you don't get me answers, I'm done. Anyway, my surgeon, the oncologist wouldn't, but the surgeon um, was on holidays at the time and Cameron rang the, um, the front desk and said, I need someone to ring me back, otherwise my wife's going to stop and we need answers now. Well, he was away at the beach and on holidays and he rang me at 7 o'clock Friday night. And he told me that I had a 50% chance was the best he could give me and that I had a six-year-old son and I had to fight. I had no choice. And that it was going to get tough and probably tougher as my chemo went on. And it, But he said, you don't have a choice. You have to fight. And from that day on, I had to fight. That was enough to give me a kickstart again to literally fight. And the tough days were proper tough, uh, really tough. Um, But in saying that, I look back now and there's good things that come out of those tough days. On one of those really tough days, who would look at Facebook? Only me, really. And I just opened it and there was a beautiful mare, a thoroughbred mare there. and, And I'd been looking, prior to having cancer, I'd been looking for another hack to start again. And Cameron was away at work and when he got home, I said to Cameron, I've bought a horse and I didn't bargain, I didn't do anything and I certainly didn't ask him, which is unusual for me because we discuss everything together and I had bought myself a mare and as it stands, I look back now and think she was meant to be part of my life because she gave me a lot of hope. He took me down in the truck which I hadn't been in the truck for months and he took me down in the truck and picked her up off transport and and I couldn't believe how big a mare I'd bought to start with. I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? But as I found out more history on the mare and the people that I bought her off, the man was a racehorse trainer and he actually had to sell her because his wife had just died of cancer and he needed the money. And... There's just some things in life that come around and that mare has been my rock 
to this very day. That's incredible. Mm. Kate, at what point did you feel like you were over the worst of it? Probably when I got to Warwick, to be honest, and I got back up to those Queensland friends. I didn't see anyone for so long, even though they'd kept in contact with me. You know, I had the likes of Jay Hall ring me and send a message while I was in hospital having my operation to start with. And I I remember breaking down actually and saying, Cameron, why are these people ringing me? They're my idols. They're actually my idols. Why are they ringing me? Anyway, a lot of them, you know, they kept me very positive and they may not have phoned me week in, week out, but I'd get a random message or some of them did ring me week in, week out and some of them actually just send messages through and say, hello, how are you going or keep fighting or just even a big hug and that was really positive. But when I got to Warwick and, and I saw all those people again and they were drafting and I knew I'd only have one, possibly two treatments after that left. And I thought, I'm really close. I'm really close to getting back to being normal. Not that I knew what normal would look like, but it was the closest I'd seen in a long time. So throughout your chemo, were you monitored or, you know, the mass had obviously been removed, but at what point did they sort of feel like everything was under control or you didn't know? (laughs) No, you didn't know. And week in, week out, I had, well, I had chemo every fortnight. So the chemo looked like I would go over on a Monday morning and I'd have blood tests. Now, you hope and pray those blood tests came back within the right range. And they did for some and they didn't for others. So sometimes I was turned around a couple of occasions where I had to go home and Cameron would have to give me a needle in my stomach and it would be one mil of a drug that would be thousands of dollars worth of a needle that we were just gagging at really. But that would lift my white blood cells up enough to be able to then go back the following week and hopefully have chemo. But you didn't know until that day whether you would be having chemo or not and you'd go into his office you'd go and have your bloods you'd come back across the road to the oncology center and you'd sit there and wait and you'd have your turn you'd go in and he'd tell you whether you could or can't and they'd open the I always called them the pearly gates and you'd walk into the chemo room and and you'd sit down there and they'd give you your dose for the day and Cameron would never leave he was with me the whole time and uh, you know it's incredible what the difference of eras are I sat with a lot of people, I sat with younger people, I sat with older people and we all had chemo at the same time and the other staff were just beautiful. But I'd have my chemo and they'd fill me up with a, like a baby's bottle of drug and it would last for 48 hours and they'd put it around my neck and I'd have to carry it, it was hooked into my chest and they'd let me go home and and then I'd have to go back in 48 hours' time and they'd unhook me and then I'd have to go home and between day seven and nine, I'd be out to it. Like I couldn't get off the lounge. I literally, that was every bone, every piece of me was just aching. You couldn't move. It was cruel. But you had to be cruel to be kind. Yeah. So in 2020, you and your family had recently moved to Gundawindi. Yeah. This triggered another scare. Yeah. 
frighten me. So every 12 months I have to have a routine, colonoscopies, scans and things like that. And it always falls over Nutrien Week. And for some reason, we just got out of whack and I missed a scan that week. I missed it booking it in in Tamworth and unfortunately it was just, I couldn't get in. And they said, don't panic, Kate, have it when you get back to Gundawindi. So I did that. The following week I got home and I, I went and had it and I got a phone call from my doctor in Gundawindi and, and she said, I'd like to see you. And I said to Cameron, don't worry about coming, mate. It's okay. She would be seeing the marks on my lungs and she would not know about them. Don't panic. I'll go. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I'll come with you. He said, it'll be fine. I'll come with you. And I got into the office and she had told me that I had a cervical cancer mass. And I just, I stood up and she stood up and hugged me. And I'd said to her, you are not to let me die. So fix me. And I will never forget that day. We just went back into fight mode. Um, Within the week, I was in Brisbane and I was so fortunate to get another amazing specialist and he went in and assessed the situation and touch wood and with lots of um, prayers, I'm pretty sure I was just, I just didn't know how I was going to deal with it if it was. It actually came back benign. I have no idea how or why, but obviously my time wasn't up. So seven years, seven years from when you were diagnosed with bowel cancer, you had that scare. Yep. Scary. Yeah. I, I have no words. I have no words. Kate, at what point after your treatment for bowel cancer were you cleared? I'm not. Never will be. They never can tell me that it's gone. They just watch me like a hawk. So every year I have the scans and every year I absolutely dread walking back in to the oncology centre and sitting down because how do you know what they're going to tell you? I feel confident that it's gone. I feel very confident that it's gone. I feel that I had... I was that lucky and and I don't know if it's luck or whatever. It has to be luck because at the time I told you before when I was having my first colonoscopy, there was two nurses. 12 months later, when I went back for my next colonoscopy, I, I had it and I came out and this nurse just kept staring at me and I was just like, is everything okay? And she said, I actually just need to hug you. Would you mind? And I said, no, why? What's going on? And she said, Kate, I never thought we would see you again. And I said, beg your pardon? She said, the day that you came in and we told you that you had bowel cancer, we actually said we'd never see you again. Now, that same time, there was three of us. There was two young gentlemen and myself in the same age bracket and both of those young gentlemen passed on. And I'm still here to fight. I have goosebumps. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm very thankful. Do you live in fear? Absolutely. Yeah. Even though you've got to be positive, it's very raw. 
So you, you never know what's around the corner. So that's why you have to live life to the absolute fullest. And it, it took me a long time to work that out. Um, you do change as a person. You don't stress the small stuff. So I suppose when people saw me go away this year on my own in the semi without a husband and certainly without my son, I think they thought I was crazy. I don't know whether people thought I'd divorce my husband or what it was. <laughs> I, I literally just, Cameron and I sat there and I had the opportunity. I had two two things to deal with, one at the ACA finals and then one at Horse of the North and they're about a month apart and Cameron said, he just looked at me and he said, Mum, why don't you go? Just go and enjoy yourself. Take your couple of nice horses and just go and do you. And I, I looked at him, I said, but I can't, mate. Like, we've got school, we've got work. He said, no, 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 Mark's got school and I've got work. He said, your work's going to go with you. He said, you've looked after us for years. Why don't you go and enjoy it? And that's what I did. I can't thank my boys enough for that. So you packed a truck up. Yeah. And you headed north. I did. My dad told me not to. My dad's a truck driver. hadn't had trucks for years. And he said, it's no place for you to drive, Kate. You can't go on your own. I said, well, I'm going on my own, Dad. (laughs) Yeah. How did you feel driving out the driveway? Pretty good. I had my son with me to drive out the driveway. And we went as a family. Well, Mark and I drove to St. George and we did the show there and the Stockholm show and draft there. And then we went through to Spring Shorter Finals all as a family. But I must admit, when my boys and I drove out of Spring Shore and I drove out on my own, I was so excited. <laughs> I, only got, I only got 67 k's down the road to Emerald and I got stuck with water, so I had to stop there for a week. But I was, I, I just knew I had to make an adventure work and do it for me. I was such an independent person, Caitlin, as a younger girl. You know, when I left home and I travelled with my horses and it would be nothing for me to leave home in Inverell or Narrabri where I was living at the time and, and duck to Queensland and do a show for the weekend. Like, that was just how we rolled. But then when you become a mum and you become a wife and you start doing things as a family, I didn't know whether I could do anything on my own. Yeah, you do lose your independence. I didn't have to put a fence up. <laughs> I didn't have to empty the toilet or do anything. I could and I did, but it was I had to do the lot. So I had to pick my own cattle and I, I had to literally deal with life on my own for, for a couple of months and it, it was the best experience to do that. Did you find that you rediscovered a bit about yourself? Absolutely. I, I certainly did and a lot of people ask me whether I was lonely. Oh, my God, you'll be lonely. Who are you travelling with? You've got to take someone. And I said, no, I don't have to take anyone. I just wanted to go on my own. And no, I wasn't lonely, Caitlin, because my boys were on the phone to me all the time anyway. Mm. And I had people at every camp draft to talk to. And what it made me do was actually go and meet different people in a totally different town. Yeah. And it just gave me a little bit of me time. You know, I, I had never sat down and just really read a book or... I'd never just listen to 
music and actually listen to the words. There was stuff like that that I did and I thought I'd be exhausted, but I really wasn't. I just, I planned my trips so that I went and did things. You know, I left Emerald and it was rained out, like Winton was called off and the next place to go was Greenvale. So off I went to Greenvale. I'd never heard of Greenvale. I'd never been to Greenvale, never been anywhere up there. So I did a tyre at Ballyendo Crossing and had to learn to change a damn tyre while men watched me do it. But that's the sort of things you did. And then I got in the truck and I was tired and I was exhausted and hot, but I'd achieved. I'd achieved changing that tyre. I got to Greenvale that night and Dan and Julie Condon drove past and, you know, then I went mustering the next day with them. I'd never been mustering Caelan. Like, yes, I'd been mustering at home, mm. but nothing like that up there. Yeah. And they would never realise that the day I went mustering, I hadn't slept that night. God, I was on a young black horse that had never been mustering. Like, he hadn't done a hard day's work in his life, that black horse. And I didn't know, you know, I always wear a helmet. Everywhere I ride, I've always got a helmet on. But Cameron said to me the night before, he said, mate, just wear your hat because it'll be too hot to wear your helmet. Just wear a hat. Do you know how hard it is to just wear a hat? I was so self-conscious of not wearing my helmet. But just to load up and have to fit in with people and all younger. Oh, well, they weren't all younger. You know, there was an older gentleman there that was in the mustering team, but he knew nothing else in his life. Yeah. You know, he was experienced. So was like in Dan. Like they just, that's their jobs. But here I am having to fit in and not feel out of place. So how did you go? I had the best day. <laughs> I never bucked off. <laughs> I kept up and I didn't have a sore backside like they all think I did, but I certainly <laughs> didn't. <laughs> how did you find Dan and Julie handled your, I guess, your rookie experience? Well, I don't know if they really knew it was rookie. <laughs> I wasn't telling anyone. <laughs> Look, absolutely, I was welcomed in to their business and their day like you wouldn't believe. And Hayley, you know, they just welcome me in. They're staff. Um, that's what happens. And I think, I don't think it'd matter whether it would be them or anyone else, you know, away you go. I was on my whole trip. Every single person welcomed me. I was overwhelmed by the amount of people that offered me to come and stay at their place or did I need anything? Was I okay? Ben Hall checked my truck. He pulled the bonnet on my truck and made sure my oil and water was right. People just do that. I was overwhelmed by the Queensland, and it really is different, the Queensland uh, mentality. It's really welcoming and warm. And I suppose until you go and, and actually experience that, you don't realise how, how warm it is. So what were some things that you learned about yourself along the way on this trip? Look, at the age of 43, I can still do everything. I may not have won a draft while I was away, but I was still more than capable of getting up and having a good time and, and safely travelling around. I broke down while I was away. And can I tell you, I now come home from my trip knowing I don't know how to fix that damn truck, but I damn well know most parts within it. <laughs> um, 
I can tell you more about radiators than I care to know, to be honest. But there was lots of things that you took out of that trip. And, and not only did it help me, it helped my boys. It probably helped my 13 or 14-year-old son now. I didn't have to do everything. I don't have to get up now and, and make sure he's right for school. I don't have to have his breakfast on the table. I don't have to pack his bag. It made us all grow as a family and that was the best thing about it. I'm not just a mum anymore. I'm back to being an independent woman again, doing what we do. And it looks like we haven't travelled much together as a family this year, but gosh, we've achieved so much as a family with Mark and his stud cattle and, and showing his cattle with the school and things like that. We've been able to achieve so much more because we've all grown. Kate, I am just speechless. I'm sitting here reflecting on on the entire story that you've just shared and I take my hat off to you on so many levels that it's a journey and unfortunately it's a journey that you continue to face every year, every day. And I do thank you so much for opening up about something that was so raw and personal and sharing it with us. Thank you, Caitlin. I suppose it, it's something that you, I felt I needed to do If it saves one person's life by me talking out and sharing my experience, you know, if anyone's got any doubt in their health, you need to go and get it checked and get it sorted. If that's something that anyone can take away from this, you've just got to be strong enough to go initially and get it sorted. Well, Kate, I'm so glad that we've ended on a positive note on this conversation because that was, it's a tough one to listen to and it will be very tough for some listeners to listen to and um, I do thank you and, and I look forward to hopefully catching up with you one day soon. Absolutely, Kate, it'll be great to catch up with you and, um, and we'll be able to talk on my next lot of adventures or your adventures. When's your <laughs> next adventure going to happen? I think every day's an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks to our sponsors, Ray White Rural Dolby and the Darling Downs branch of the Australian Stockhorse Society.